Hello, my friends, and welcome to this episode of So Important. My guest today is Mr. Benny Becker, a public radio reporter who focuses on regional infrastructure challenges impacting the towns and people of the vast Appalachian region. Based in rural Kentucky, Benny has gotten to know many individuals personally impacted by these challenges. He shares their story in depth and in their own voice through his reporting. A graduate of Brown University, a former Abrams Neiman Fellow for Local Investigative Journalism at Harvard University, and a true world traveler, Benny is going to talk to us today about his journey and the important work he is doing in Appalachia. Benny, with that, I am very happy to welcome you to the show, and I'd like to invite you to introduce yourself to our listeners. I grew up in Morgantown, West Virginia. I went, like you said, I went off, um, I moved up to Rhode Island to Brown, studied linguistics there. I thought I wanted to be a teacher, um, and then I got into the world of audio. I think Radio Lab was the podcast that first really pulled me in. I started making stories there at the college station and then at the local NPR station. So then after I graduated, the way I ended up, it took a while, but the way I found a first full-time position, I went to a conference in Chicago, the Third Coast Conference, and ended up with a job producing for a podcast in Israel called Israel Story. And then I, I'd been trying to find a way back closer to home and a job opened up here with a new, um, it was a regional collaboration of public radio stations called the Ohio Valley Resource. And I've been at this a really cool little community station called WMMT here at the Apple Shop in Whitesburg, Kentucky. And is that where you are now? Yep. Um, well, I'm just outside Whitesburg. Yep. Out here in Letcher County. Well, you grew up in West Virginia, and then you went on to a number of uh, fascinating places like you just described, including Israel. Spent some time in Latin America, in Indonesia. You're a well-traveled person, and all that travel has led you to uh, rural Kentucky. Cities have a lot of conveniences and a lot of cultural activities and things, but I enjoy greatly being in a place with more trees than people. It feels like a more sustainable pace of life. And it's also just a place where I feel comfortable with how I get understood. So going to Israel for me was, was you know, going to an ex- one extreme of my identity and going coming down here a much more rural and folk art centered place was kind of a diff going to the Appalachian extreme of my identity. What's fascinating to me about it is that you've really taken to a set of issues that I think probably don't get enough exposure or at least don't get that much exposure. And I'm wondering if you can talk about the kind of things that you do on your broadcasts. So the, the beat I was originally assigned um, was to be reporting on economic transition in the central Appalachian coal fields, mostly eastern Kentucky and southern West Virginia. So I, I usually translated that as jobs and money. Apple Shop's the place I've been working. It started as a, a jobs training program in the war on poverty, teaching people how to make film. This was like right when the technology came out to be doing film recording with synced sound using a single device. The idea was people would move off and get jobs in TV or something like that. But the people they trained were like, forget that. No one's telling our story here. We're going to stay home and make sure that, you know, the voices of our community are sharing our own perspective. Because I think Appalachia is one of many places where in a world where the media is very consolidated and increasingly so, it seems, um, people get spoken about a lot more than they get to speak or get to or get spoken to or spoken with. So 
a lot of a lot of what I've learned and what I've been trying to do here, it's, you know, it's reporting the news, keeping people informed of what's happening. But a big part of it is also being aware of the different dynamics of like, whose narratives get elevated, who gets positioned as someone with authority and control versus someone whose agency gets stripped of them and is just like an example of a victim. And so we really try and avoid that. Um, and instead kind of center the lived experience of people who are people who are living the news, people who are most affected by whatever it is we're talking about in their daily lives, which is usually workers or people living on the edges of industrial sites, things like that. Um, so a lot of my reporting has been on, you know, workers with black lung disease, people impacted by the environmental impacts of coal mines and gas wells is was the recent story coal mines and gas wells affecting water systems and water supplies but also people struggling from underfunded public utilities and then also putting trying to boost the signal of people who are trying to make new ways forward um so i did a whole big series on schools and the different ways that that young people and their teachers are are trying to plant seeds of new economies that can make it possible for there to be a just economic transition in this region where the extractive industry that has built the economic system for a long time is continually <laughs> crumbling, collapsing. When you go to these these towns, are you welcome and are they happy to have someone who really wants to delve into their stories and sees, and do people generally see this as, a, as, as an opportunity? The history of how this region fits into the news a lot of it is when the national media wants to talk about poverty but doesn't want to talk about race, it comes to Appalachia and it comes to, you know, the coal fields, it comes to Appalachia and pretends that everyone's white and it pretends that everyone's poor. And, you know, this is a place that is disproportionately white and has a lot of people with with lower, you know, low fixed incomes, but that's not the whole story. And, you know, a lot of times... When people are coming in with that, like, okay, you check the boxes of the story I want to tell, they're not actually looking to learn anything. They're just looking for the voice that tells the story they think they already know without having been here. But, you know, as someone who's based here and someone who's reporting is trying to be counter to a lot of those projects, I usually don't have pro I, I haven't really had a problem. I'm usually able pretty quickly to get people to realize that I'm trying to understand what they're trying to get people to understand. I mean, I, I do sometimes end up just in a place looking for who will talk to me, but mostly the way I center my reporting is around like who is someone who wants who is someone who wants to be heard and I find it's a lot more fruitful and productive to talk to the people who aren't being heard and want to be heard than to spend time trying to chase down the government officials or the business people who are avoiding comment when, you know, we already know their perspective. I'm trying to amplify the voices of the people. You really put an emphasis on letting people talk in their own voice. Uh, you really give people a chance to express themselves. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. And I, I think to me, like, there's a lot of ethical issues in media and journalism is itself can very easily be an extractive industry too, where you're just, you can be taking people's stories and making profit off it and not actually helping them. So I think one of the ways that I try to get around that ethical wrinkle is to take my, decenter my own voice more. And I, I really like doing unnarrated stories, which is also something that where I work Apple shop has a, a long history of. Uh, we're going to include uh, links to your website and to your stories, because I think a lot of people would find them very interesting. 
And you've done a number of remarkable stories on issues touching on clean water, coal mining related issues, uh, black lung issues, even prison abuse. Uh, and these are not all of the, the stories, but these are a good representative sample. And you've, you've talked to so many interesting people and you just did a story on clean water. And I'm wondering if you can tell people about your most recent story. Yeah, so the title was Clean Water Wanted, Contaminated Wells, and the Legacy of Fossil Fuel Extraction. I'd been trying to go around a wide region, just seeing what stories came to me. The most compelling story, I guess, I came across this family down in McDowell County, West Virginia. Their well had been poisoned. The grandpa died from kidney failure, which lines up with arsenic, which, you know, is consistent with arsenic that was in their water. So it seems there's a good chance that that was what caused his death. And they've been trying to get city water and they can't get it. So I, I guess to me, there's a few different things going on here. The first thing that was really emotionally impacting for me to hear the story is that their sense of what caused this is when the wells, the gas wells stopped pumping. Um, that was when everything's got depressurized and more chemicals and poisons were able to flow through the ground and into the groundwater, into their groundwater, into their well. And in a moment right now where, you know, there's just recently in the last few years been a huge surge in the amount of gas wells, their worry that they definitely got in my mind is that, you know, their situation could be one that be that's about to become a lot more common as the, all of these gas wells that were recently drilled. There's a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty about what will happen when they stop producing. And then the second layer of the story is that they've been trying for eight years because of worries about their well water to get connected to a city water system. And this is the most maddening big, big picture things I've learned in my reporting is how drastically and consistently underfunded public water systems have been. I, t I spoke to one, she's a, a, wa a professor who works with water systems. She used to work with the EPA. And the way she described it is that under Reagan, there was, she called it the great dismantling. And one part of that is a big shift in water systems. You know, water systems were mostly built with federal grants, but since the seventies, I think it is, they've there's almost there's almost exclusively loans coming out and especially in rural areas where it's hard to sustain a business model you know with a more, with a less dense population and also where the economy is declining and people don't have money to spare there's just this kind of spiraling effect where public infrastructure is falling apart and there's not the money present to fix it and when that happens, people get hurt. Water systems become unsafe. And that's something I think that we're not really grappling with and that there's a lot of fear is soon to become a growing problem if the structure isn't changed. As you as you get to know these people, uh, do you feel that they have an effective advocate of some sort? Everyone says, well, we can't find anything that gives you a legal case to hold someone responsible to pay for it. And then when they turn to public agencies, you know, they've written letters to the senator, to the to their governor, to lots of people. They've they show up at the local water um, commission meetings and all these people are trying to help them. But, you know, they heard back from, I think, at least one of the senators that they were that they'd gotten more money allocated for this county's water system. But then, you know, the water system is just so far behind the neat meeting the needs in the community because they've inherited all these crumbling systems that have been unmaintained for decades were inadequately built in the first place by coal companies. Um, none of their 3,300 customers have sewer currently. So, you know, this family is, 
you know, there's a few dozen, there's a couple, maybe dozen households at the end of this road who aren't connected, who didn't get connected the last time they extended water out this way. And even when the county gets funding, they just can't get the funders to agree to make it a priority. And they have so many other projects that they need to prioritize of putting in a first sewer sewage system in a place where the system that currently pumps sewage into the creek even stopped working. And now sewage just backs up in people's basements. One of the really fascinating things and one of the great things about how you report these stories is that you bring out the human dimension so well. Maybe you could talk a minute about the family and how you came across them. And they had uh, some personal tragedy because of this issue too, didn't they? Let's see. So they'd first gone to the health department for testing. Through the health department, they got connected to this, um, to Appalachian Voices, um, which is a nonprofit that, you know, they publish a um, environmental advocacy magazine or a magazine that reports on environmental issues. And they do advocacy. They do a lot of testing trying to hold state agencies accountable for for making sure that coal mines in particular are following the rules they're supposed to. I have a friend who works for them and he'd met this family. He connected me with them. They're terrified. I mean, they've had someone in their family die. The grandpa died. They think it's the water that caused it. And that's, it's not, you know, their water is not safe to drink and there's a whole lifestyle change, but there's also a whole nother, a whole nother dimension where once you start feeling that the world around you is not as safe as you've recognized and something as fundamental as water, you can't stop thinking about it. And that's something that stuck with me too. I, I've gotten a lot more paranoid about what I can drink now that I've spent time hearing from people who have suffered because they drank something they thought was safe that wasn't. And that's a hard thing to shake. You have such a strong personal commitment to the mission and to the work that you do. And it really comes out in your words as well as your uh, writing. And uh, I think you really need to be commended for that. One of the things I've been grappling with over the last couple of years is that like secondary trauma is real and it comes through even more through recordings. So listening or watching a video of someone going through something traumatic or talking about it. I care a lot about this work, but it hasn't really felt sustainable. It's been, you know, causing me pain in a range of ways. And then I also have conflicts with myself about like how my voice fits into all this. So all this to say, I do feel strongly about it, but I'm also at a moment of kind of thinking about how to pivot. So I'm I'm looking more into training young people here in the region on how to tell their own stories and the stories of their immediate communities instead of being so much in the storyteller position myself. And what's remarkable about that uh, is that you are really committed to being in the region, staying involved with these uh, people one way or another to the extent that you will be their advocate. I guess where I can. I mean, I a thing that's shifted that really struck me when I heard it. You know, there's a line that people say a lot that's like to be a voice for the voiceless. And it took hearing someone call it out how kind of problematic that can be to assume to think that it's not that people don't have voices and aren't advocating for themselves it's that they're not getting heard. You know, so that's that's kind of how I try to think of myself. I'm not trying so much to speak on other people's behalf. And I feel like when I do that is when I leave out the point that they know from it being in their life, from it being their world. So I'm just I'm trying to help other people get heard. You're doing a great job and I wish you all the luck in the future. Keep up the good work. And thank you so much for talking today. Yeah, thanks for your interest and thanks for your your caring. Good luck to you as well in helping to shine light about what people find important and helping us all to find good importance in our lives. Thank you very much, Betty. Thanks, Money.